So we're in Exodus chapter uh, 25, uh, 26, and 27. It is the tabernacle. So what's happening here, just to recap, the Lord has brought Israel out of Egypt. He's brought them to Mount Sinai. We've talked about this quite a bit. He brings them to the base of Mount Sinai. Uh, Moses brings the people out. It says literally to meet God. Uh, the mountain shakes. There's trumpets and horns. There's, there's violence really around the mountain. And the people of Israel are scared to death. And so before God says anything, they say, whatever he says, we will do, right? They pronounce and announce their obedience to God right away, even though they have no idea what he's going to ask. Of them. Moses goes up the mountain, he brings down the law, and they say in unison, whatever he says we will do, we will obey. Right? And so then we see last week, we see this really commencement of this covenant where Moses uh, takes this word to the people, announces it. They say, yes, we agree to this. Uh, we talked about this last week. Moses takes a sacrifice. He sprinkles Israel with blood. The blood of the sacrifice was really pointing to the ultimate blood of Christ. And so now uh, we can imagine that all life is good. Everything goes great. The Israelites are completely satisfied and know who God is. And then Moses and God disappear for 40 days and 40 nights. It almost reminds me of like an internet catfishing scheme or something like that. Like, I'm going to get you to agree to this. You're going to send me some money because I'm your friend. And then you're never going to hear from me again, right? I can imagine that Israel was like, whoa, 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 where are you going? And why, like, why are you not here with us now? We just entered into this relationship with you. And Moses goes up to the mountain again for 40 days and 40 nights. And he's given the law again, and also he's going to bring down the law, and he's given instructions for the tabernacle. And in the tabernacle, you can easily get lost in the weeds for three chapters. It's going to give detailed instructions for how to construct this, what the materials are supposed to be made of, how it's supposed to look, how it's supposed to feel, how much light is supposed to go into the, like detailed instructions. And so most of us, if I'm going to be honest, most of us flip through this and think, okay, where's some instructions for me? And in fact, this week, there's a few days this week where I kept flipping through like, God, what am I going to preach? have no idea. Can we just skip these? And then the Lord spoke. Because in the tabernacle, I believe the Lord isn't just giving instructions for this place. He's trying to teach Israel who he is and what he cares about. And I think for us as well, he's doing the same. So Exodus 25, 1 through 8, it says, Then the Lord spoke to Moses up on the mountain, Tell the sons of Israel to raise a contribution for me from every man whose heart moves him. You shall raise my contribution. And this is the contribution which you are to raise from them. Gold, silver, bronze, blue, purple, scarlet material, fine linen, goat hair, ram skins, dyed red, porpoise skins, Acadia wood, oil for lighting, spices for anointing oil, and the fragrant incense, onyx stones, setting stones for the ephod, and the breastplate. And uh, I think God forgot, maybe, that Israel were slaves. When you read this instruction, when you read this, uh, I, I kind of look at it and I think, Lord, these people were slaves for 400 years. What do they have to bring you? 
What do they have to bring you that, that, that they actually have anything of value? Well, we find the answer back in Exodus chapter 3, and the answer is what God gave them. Notice, if you remember, in Exodus chapter 3, God says this to his people. He says, I will grant this people favor in the sight of Egyptians, that when they shall be, when the way that you should go, you will not go empty-handed. But every woman shall ask of her neighbor and the woman who lives in her house articles of silver, gold, clothing, everything that he's asking for now. And you will put them on your sons and daughters, thus you will plunder the Egyptians. Do you understand what's happening? So back in Exodus 3, God knows and understands these people have been slaves for 400 years. And he says this, I'm going to give you favor with your Egyptian neighbors. And you're, all you're going to do is you're going to simply go out and ask them, would you have anything to send with us? And they're going to gladly give over, they're going to gladly give over gold, silver, purple linen all the things right this is I feel like he's saying you're going to give it to me right (laughs) and he says in Exodus chapter 3 he says it's going to be like you have plundered them and yet they willingly give it what I find incredible is here in Exodus chapter 5 God has given it to them they've taken it through the desert They're at Mount Sinai. He says, I'm going to build a tabernacle, and I'm requesting that if your heart moves you to bring some of these things that I gave you. He's pulling them into who he is, the plan that he has for them, and the plan that he has for his kingdom. And he's inviting them into it by a means of which what he already gave them. Isn't this fantastic? that the Lord is inviting the people of Israel into his plan and purpose. And as insufficient and ill-equipped as they feel like they are, he says, I've already given you what I'm asking you for. I'm already given you what I'm asking you for. I would suppose also that the Lord, as they uh, defeated Amalek for Israel in Exodus 17, that they were able to plunder them as well. Everything that they had to give Everything that they had to give was already given by God. Everything. And so we see the Lord inviting them into the process of the building of the tabernacle, but then he invites them into his presence. Notice why he's building a tabernacle in verse 8. And let them construct a sanctuary for them. And this is, I feel like, the, like such a pivotal point in Scripture, that I might dwell among them. Do you understand the absurdity of this passage? Let Israel construct a tabernacle. Why? So that they can just come and worship? No, so that he can come down and dwell among them. According to all that I'm going to show you as the pattern of the tabernacle and the pattern of all of its furniture, just you shall construct it. Just five Hebrew words construct this phrase. And it would be translated something like this, that they will make me a holy place and I will locate among them. Another translation might say this, they might make me a holy place so that I can dwell among them. Or or quite literally, that I might tent among them. As Israel lives in tents and sets up a camp, he says that they will construct for me a tabernacle and I will tent with them. Israel wasn't the actual first 
uh, nation in antiquity uh, to be nomads or camp in various locations. Other nations did this, especially in times of war and conquering. And uh, it was customary, actually, for the king's tent to be placed in the middle of camp. And this was actually not for the nation's benefit as much as it was for his benefit as protection. It provided layers of protection for the king. And in this, we have Numbers chapter 2. God provides very specific places where each tribe is going to camp around the tabernacle. But his purpose isn't for his protection. It's for his presence. I want to be in the middle of camp. I want to be in the place, in the center, where everyone will see, everyone will come. It doesn't matter which tribe you come from. It doesn't matter what your status is in that tribe. I will be in the middle and you will have access. I think this, the tabernacle teaches us that God is persistent to pursue a relationship with his people. The tabernacle teaches us that God is persistent to pursue a relationship with his people. The very fact that God would desire to come and dwell with his people in the desert says so much for him and his love for the people. What kind of king steps off the throne to live in the slums with his people? Who does this? What kind of king leaves the place where angels sing, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, to step into a place with almost only murmuring and complaining? Of course, we know that God is omnipresent. He's everywhere. But if there's one place where I would say, step in and say, God, you don't want to be here, it would be in the desert with Israel. Complaining. Looking back to Egypt. And yet he says, build me a tabernacle so my very, the essence of my presence, my, my redeeming work would be concentrated right here with you, dwelling with you. I think all nations are going to see his power in Yahweh through the tabernacle and the ark that Israel carries around. God is inviting them into that, but also he's teaching them that one of his greatest desires is for all men to have a relationship with him. Notice what, what John says about this in the New Testament. He says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Stop right there. Jesus, the Son of God, who formed creation with His words, who was God, He was in the beginning with God, and all things came into being through Him. And apart from Him, not even one thing came into being that has been into being. He says, apart from Christ, nothing would exist. In him was life, and the life was the light of mankind. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we saw his glory in the glory of the Son, the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Think about the absurdity of this, where God himself would take on human flesh and dwell among us. It points back to the tabernacle, same language used. And it shows us and teaches us over and over again how desperate God is to pursue a relationship. And I want to take the plurality out of this, not with just all. Listen to this. This teaches us how desperate God is to pursue a relationship with you. With you. With the murmurers and the complainers 
and the ones who look back to Egypt and the ones who say, take us back, Moses. The ones who said, my pots were full there. God comes to dwell in their midst. And he's come to pursue a relationship with you. No matter what your past is or even what your present is, God desperately wants a relationship with you. But also the tabernacle treats us that God is holy and he must be treated as holy. The tabernacle teaches us, and I'm going to push through quite a bit of passages here, but I want you to write this down because I think it's important. I think the rest, literally three chapters of the tabernacle construction will, I think, will prove this point. The tabernacle teaches us that God is holy and must be treated as holy. I've got a picture of the tabernacle, and I think it'll be up on the screen, possibly. Here we go. Uh, it, it, so if you can see it from where you're at. Uh, so the entire thing, uh, actually all the corners of the screen here would include something uh, called the, the temple, the tabernacle. We have the outer court here, the holy place, the holy of holies. And we have different structures or different instruments, different furniture that represents various things in the tabernacle. Here is the holy of holies, uh, the most holy place. Uh, this is the holy place and we have the outer court. And so the next three chapters in, um, in Exodus actually point us in a progression. Uh, I'm going to actually go backwards. I'm going to start in Exodus 27, and we're going to work our way back to Exodus 25. I would like to say I don't think my way is better than God's way. I just think this is how I understand it. We're going to start on the outside of the temple and go in. In God's instructions for the temple, he starts in the Holy of Holies and moves outward. Okay, I want to show you the progression going inward. So here's what we're going to do. We have a few things. The courtyard, Exodus chapter 27, uh, 9 through 13. And I'll mention this too. There's so much study on all of these things. We're not even going to like reach into the surface on all the imagery. There is a, a video that I linked from the Bible Project uh, in our YouVersion notes. And it's a fascinating video that links the tabernacle and the temple with the Garden of Eden and heaven in Revelation. It's very fascinating. I would look at that. It's seven minutes long and it does a fantastic job of making all of those connections. But look at the courtyard. So the courtyard, if you can go back, uh, was the very entrance into the tabernacle. It was out here where the laver and the altar of burnt offerings were. And notice the instructions for the, car, the courtyard, the tent that goes around the whole structure. He says this in verse 9 through 13. Now you should make the courtyard of the tabernacle on the south side. There should be hangings uh, for the courtyard of fine twisted linen. I want you to pay attention to a couple of things the detail of as we progress, and the quality of materials, okay? This is used in linen, uh, 100 cubits long for one side, and its pillars shall be 20, with their uh, 20 bases of bronze. Hooks of pillars and bands shall be of silver, likewise of the north side, and the length there shall be hangings, 100 cubits long. A cubit was about 18 inches. Uh, 20 pillars and 20 uh, bases of bronze, 
the hooks of the pillars and their bands shall be silver for the width of the courtyard on the west shall be the hangings of 50 cubits and their 10 pillars at their 10 bases and the width of the courtyard on the east side shall be 50 cubits. So this is why we typically just turn the page, right? It's just like these are blueprints to a building that I don't understand. Notice what happens next as we progress to the altar that's in the inner court, Exodus 27, 1 through 4. Now you should make the altar of Acadia wood, five cubits long, five cubits wide, and the altar should be square. Its height should be three cubits, and you should make its horns of four corners, and the horns should be in one piece with it, and you shall overlay it with bronze. So it's getting more detailed. You should make pails for its ashes and shovels and basins and forks and fire pans and all of its utensils, all the little pieces that go with it, they're all bronze, he says. And you shall make it a grating, a nesting bronze, and a netting that you should make four bronze rings on four corners. Then we move to the tent itself, the covering of the tent. He says, you shall make uh, the curtains of goat's hair as a tent of the, over the tabernacle. You shall make 11 curtains and all and they would overlap so we're getting a little bit more detailed when you come in you see the altar but then the tent that covers it it's goat's hair right it's nothing special really I mean he could have asked for almost anything but then we move inside and the veil and the curtain notice what happens with the veil and the curtain he says you should make the veil of violet purple scarlet material fine twisted linen and that shall be made with cherubim in the work of a skilled embroiderer. We're getting detailed. Then you shall hang it in four pillars of Acadia overlaid with gold, and their hooks also of gold in the four places of silver. And you shall hang the veil under the claps and bring the ark of the testimony, the ark of the covenant, there within the veil, and the veil shall serve as a partition for you in the holy place and the most holy place. You should put the anointing cover of the Ark of the Testimony of the Holy Place. Uh, most writers would say that these veils, remember when Christ died, the veil was ripped into. We have instructions for this. It's, it's literally veil after veil after veil. I think five of them that are put together. That A lot of writers would say it would equal almost three feet in depth of material. Three feet in depth of material. It's heavy. A fine linen all of these things. Then we have a lampstand and a table. Exodus 25, 23. It should say that you should make a table of Acadia wood, two cubits length and one cubit wide and one cubit high. And you shall overlay it out with pure gold and make gold border around it. The lampstand would go on uh, in Exodus 25, verse 31. You should make a lampstand of pure gold, a lampstand, its base, its shaft are to be hammered work, its cups, bowls, tulips of flowers should be one piece of it. Six branches should go out on the sides and three branches from the lampstand and one of its side and three of its branches of the lampstand on the other side. The cups shall be shaped like almond blossoms with one branch, a bulb and a flower. This is a lampstand with fine detail literally laid out and gold. And you should put, uh, and he says this three cups should be placed like an almond blossoms, one branch, a bulb, and a flower, and three cups shaped like an almond blossom on the other branch, a bulb, and a flower. The same for six branches going out for the lampstand, and the lampstand, four cups shaped like almond blossoms, its bulbs, and its flowers. You could probably build that right now, I'm sure, with those instructions, right? And then we get to the Ark of the Covenant. In 25, 10 through 16. 
Now they should construct an ark of Acadia wood two and a half cubits long, one and a half cubits wide, and one and a half cubits high. You should overlay it with pure gold inside out. You shall overlay it inside and out now. The entire thing is made with gold, and you should make it gold molding around it. You should cast four rings for it and then fasten it on its feet. Two rings shall be on one side of it and two rings on the other side, and you shall make poles of Acadia wood and then overlay them with gold, and you should use these poles and the rings of the sides to carry the ark. What he's saying, and he'll give further instructions later, this is going to be so special, I don't ever want you to touch it again. I want you to carry it with poles. There's a priest who learns that lesson later on in Scripture. And the poles shall remain in the ark and remain in the rings of the ark, and they shall not be removed from it. And you shall put it in the ark of the testimony, which I will give you. Okay, so lots of scripture, lots of detail. I hope you saw the progression of materials and sacredness as they move from the outer court all the way into the holy of holies. The instructions get more detailed. The material gets more costly. All of it is building us up into this funnel where we see and notice and experience literally the holiness of God. But not only is there a progression of materials and sacredness, there's this physical appearance that, that points our eyes, our hearts, our minds to the holiness, but also the restrictions of who can enter each section. Even though God has asked for the people uh, of Israel to construct a movable tabernacle for him to dwell in, there's still limited access. Only the priests would be the consecrated or consecrated Levites that can go in. Only they can make offerings on behalf of the nation. And even within the priestly order, you have some priests that are restrained and restricted to the outer courts, some priests that can go into the holy place, and then only one person, the high priest, could enter into the holy of holies. You see this progression of not just the materials that are used, the instructions that are given, but you see this progression of holiness that's, that's demanded by those who come into his presence. It indicates for us, it shows us again, that God is holy and his presence has to be protected with holiness. Notice what the rest of Scripture, just a sampling of Scripture says about the holiness of God. Isaiah 57, 15 says, For thus says the, the one who is high and lifted up, who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy. Revelation 4, 8 says that the four living creatures, each one of them with six wings full of eyes all around them within, and day and night they never cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. This is, this, is the, this is the pronunciation and the declaration of God in his throne room. This is the declaration, you are holy. This, that's it. Think about all that could be said about God, his presence and who he is, and yet the only thing that really needs to be said in that moment in the throne room by these creatures who God created for this purpose and put this song in his heart all that you think some of our songs are repetitive <laughs> all that needs to be said is this holy 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 think about that for a second that's all that needs to be said 
And this tabernacle is pushing us to understand, it's pushing Israel to understand this. You can't think of me as your bro. You have to think of me as holy. I've come to dwell with you, but you have to understand, I'm righteous and you are not. I think there's a weight that comes there. There should be a weight that comes with the holiness of God. Psalm 99 says it this way. Exalt the Lord our God and worship at his holy mountain for the Lord our God is holy. And I think maybe if we stopped there, if that's all that the tabernacle taught us, that he's here to dwell with us and that his presence and his essence of his being is holy, I would assume that this tabernacle is for judgment. It's like a courthouse, right? It's, it's so that he can keep the order, keep the peace, so that he can watch over us, that he is, is, he's in our midst, right in the middle, uh, so that he can hold his lightning rod and smite us as soon as we do something wrong. It's so that he can be close to us to destroy us. But that's not at all what the tabernacle's for. I believe that the tabernacle teaches us that not only does God desperately want a relationship with you, it doesn't just teach us that he's holy. The tabernacle teaches us that God desperately wants to forgive our sins. The tabernacle teaches us that God desperately wants to forgive your sins. That he comes and sets up this tabernacle so that he can do this. Numbers, again, chapter 2 tells us how the camp was situated and who camped there. God had intentional instructions for the tribes as well, but in the center of the camp, he would put his tabernacle. Everyone would be able to see the pillar of cloud by day and fire by night. Everyone would be able to smell the sacrifices being burned on the altar. Everyone would be able to walk uh, by the tabernacle and realize that this was where their sins were atoned for. And God brought it to them. You know, in Numbers chapter 2, I don't don't have this on the screen. Uh, There's... there's thought and and even debate on how the nations or the tribes were laid out. I'm going to just read a section of it. Uh, The Lord said to Moses, this comes from Numbers chapter 2 again, I don't have this on the screen. Uh, The sons of Israel shall camp uh, each of his own standard with the banners of their father's households and they shall camp around the tent of meeting at a distance. And now those who camp on the east side toward the sunrise shall be the standard of Judah by their armors, their leaders, the sons of Judah, Nashon, the son of Abdon, and his army, and their numbered men, 74,000. Those who camp next to him shall be the tribe of Ishakar. And then it says in verse 7, and then comes the tribe of Zebulun. It gives numbers for each tribe. And some people put the, those tribes kind of like, uh, you know, on the east side, there's one, two, and three. Uh, but some some translations would literally translate this as as he's giving the order he says it's Judah and then and then they would not place them kind of in parallel structure but actually in linear structure what's interesting about that is if you look at the numbers and how they're formed from a bird's eye view 
the camp of Israel would, would actually form a cross. Now, I, I don't know for sure that that's how it was. And maybe some of our minds love that idea. The tabernacle itself points to Jesus. The tabernacle itself over and over and over and over again points to the sacrifice, sacrificial system of atonement. So I wouldn't put it past God to put a bird's eye view of the cross in the camp of Israel. The whole thing points to the cross. The whole thing points to Jesus. The whole thing points to the fact that God desperately wants to forgive our sins. That's why he put the tabernacle there for the day of atonement over and over and over. It wasn't a one and done thing. It wasn't a, hey, I'll forgive you this time and I'm going to head out. Now I'm not with you anymore. If you sin again, that's your bad, that's your problem, that's what you have to deal with. No, God would stay there with them in their sin and provide atonement over and over and over again. Notice even the seat that rests on the Ark of the Covenant. In Exodus chapter 25, verse 17, this is how he describes the top of the Ark of the Covenant. And you shall make what he calls a mercy seat. I love how the scripture, it actually says like a layer of atonement is the, the, probably the, the best that I can come up with. Put there a layer of atonement to make things right. Two and a half cubits long, one and a half cubits wide. It's almost like verb-esque. You're doing something. It's not necessarily an object. It's something that's accomplishing something. You should make two gold cherubims of gold hammered at the work of two ends of the mercy seat. And make one cherubim at one end and one cherubim at the other end. And you should make the cherubim of one piece with the mercy seat at its two ends. And the cherubim shall have their wings spread upward, covering the mercy seat with their wings facing one another. And the faces of the cherubim are to be turned towards the mercy seat. You remember cherubim before. We've seen them um, at least once more. They were the angels placed outside of the Garden of Eden with the fiery swords that says you cannot come in. And now they rest over what he calls his mercy seat. He says this, you shall put the mercy seat on top of the ark and the ark you should put the testimony in which I will give you and there I will meet with you and from above the mercy seat. And from between the two cherubim which are upon the ark of the testimony, I will speak to you and all that I will give you in the commandment for the sons of Israel. As he's drawing them into who he is, he's drawing them in for the forgiveness of sins. That's why the tabernacle's there. The tabernacle is not there to provide judgment. It's to provide mercy and atonement for their sins. Think about this. This might be totally different than the way that you view God. Maybe some of you, some of as if he has this lightning bolt just ready and wanting to smite us. You know, maybe like if you're training a, a dog or something, you've got the new remote control collar, you know. We made our kids like zap themselves on their leg before they got the privilege of, of pushing that button, you know. 
I did not because I don't like being shocked. <laughs> the trick is, right, you watch them, right, and your, your finger's ready. It's like as soon as they make a mistake, I'm going to buzz them so that they know exactly what they're not supposed to do that. And maybe some, some of us have this view of God where he's sitting there just waiting just waiting to push us down. I'm going to just I'm going to punish. I'm going to smite. I'm going to suffer and persecute. And I think the tabernacle paints a very different picture of God. That he would dwell among us, not for his own good, not for judgment, but for mercy. Paul preaches a sermon, writes a letter in the form of a sermon almost. It's an entirety, it's, it's Hebrews chapter 9 and 10. I, I would encourage you to read that this week. I would encourage you to read all of like Exodus 25, 26, 27, maybe watch that video, and then read Hebrews 9 and 10. It might take you 20 minutes to do that study. Listen to a few words that Paul writes in Hebrews chapter 9. Now, even the first covenant had regulations of divine worship in the earthly sanctuary, for there was a tabernacle prepared, an outer one in which there were a lampstand and a table on sacred bread, and this is called the holy place. And behind the second veil, there was a tabernacle, which was called the Holy of Holies, having a golden altar of incense and the Ark of the Covenant covered with all sides with gold. He's describing like we went through our journey of looking at all of the things. And which was a golden jar holding manna and Aaron's rod that budded in the tables of the covenant. And above it were the cherubim of glory overshadowing the mercy seat. He calls it that again. And but all of these things, which we can't even speak of in detail. Verse 6, now when these things have been so prepared, the priests are continually entering the outer tabernacle, providing uh, and performing these divine worship. But into the second, only the high priest enters once a year, not without taking blood, which he offers for himself and for the sins of the people and committed in ignorance. And thus the Holy Spirit is signifying this, that the way in which the holy place has not yet been disclosed while the outer tabernacle is still standing, which is a symbol... For the present time. Accordingly, both gifts and sacrifices offered, which cannot make the worshiper perfect in conscience, since they relate only to food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body imposed until a time of reformation. Everything changes here. But when Christ appeared as a high priest, of all the good things to come, he entered through the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is to say, not of, his, not of this creation, and not through the blood of goats or calves, but through his own blood. He entered the holy place once and for all, having obtained eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer, sprinkling those who have been de defiled uh, and sanctify for the cleansing of flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? 
Then he continues to write in Hebrews 10, verse 19. He says, Therefore, since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way which he inaugurated for us through the veil, that is his flesh, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a sincere heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast to the confession of our hope without wavering. Why? Because he who promised is faithful. I don't know if you caught this, but later on in the New Testament, by Christ, he literally invites us into the holy of holies, the very presence of God through the forgiveness of our sins made possible by Jesus. I don't know if you are like me in the fact that you know your heart, you know your mind, you know your past, you know your struggles. And if you're like me, you feel at times so unworthy I have felt at times like like these words are true for everyone else in the room. Certainly not me, Lord. These words are true for you. He doesn't offer people forgiveness. He offers you forgiveness. He offers you full access to God. And I think the enemy is doing his best, even now at this very moment, to say that's a lie. It doesn't apply to you. I mean, if you didn't have the things in your past, if you didn't have your sin, Scripture tells us that each one of us, all of us, can enter into the throne room of God, into the Holy of Holies, not because we're good, because Jesus brings us there. I would invite you to even respond in prayer today. Maybe today you feel far from God. Maybe today you feel the weight of your sin. Maybe today you feel like you can't come close to God before you figure things out or get it all together. I would invite you to grab someone during this response song those waiting in the back, they will take you behind the curtain and pray with you the truths of Scripture. We would love the chance to pray with you this morning as we respond to the faithfulness of God. Would you pray with me? Lord, we thank you that forgiveness is not based on our merit. It's only based on your faithfulness. It's only based on your promise and your sacrifice for us. Lord, thank you for this passage that teaches us that you want a relationship with us, that you're righteous, but you desperately want to forgive our sins. Lord, would you give us the courage to just ask you to do just that? God, you have been faithful to us, and we will cling to your faithfulness. It's in your name we pray.